Well, good morning, First Family. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord today? Let me tell you, uh, that video, it seems a little dark, don't you think? I don't know about you, but that's the way this passage seems to me. This is not, however, the final verse. Let's start with some bad news and finish with some good. How about that? They're going to close Garfield Street this week, I'm told. When you come back next week, if they do so, then we're going to close the west parking lot. We're concerned about people hopping over the ditch. And we know there's going to be some ditches. They're working on the storm drains. That's their plan. I stood over there the last time they were doing that work and counted how many of you jumped over the ditch. <laughs> too many. Too many. Those ditches will be deep, and we just don't want anybody to take a fall and find themselves on the business end of the bottom of that ditch. So we're going to, presuming the work proceeds as they plan, we're going to close that west parking lot. Now, we got the bad news over with. Let's get some good news. How about that? Through the money that you gave that we allocated in December to mission partners and to uh, church pastors all over the state of Texas, we have been able to bless thus far over 325 churches and pastors. How about that, friends? <laughs> Praise the Lord. It's not our money, friends. God just gave it to us to loan, and uh, he gave it to us to use for his honor and glory, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. More good news. Our friend Don Sparks, FBC's own Don Sparks, was named Top Hand this week by the Permian Basin Petroleum Association. When you see Don, what, what, make sure, I think he and his family are still making their way from the choir room in, make sure and offer him a hearty word of congratulations, won't you? More good news. Our friend Wanda, right down here. It's her birthday. We celebrate your birthday, sweetheart. We politeness. Politeness forbids me from saying what birthday it is, but it's one that we'll say we're off to a good start. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Good to see each of you here today. Let us begin with a solemn recognition of what's in the passage today. When we get to the last half of Revelation 20, we realize we're getting close to the end. There's only two chapters left. But one thing that needs to be finalized is this business of God, bringing an end to all things, including the created order, and God ushering in the era of the great white throne of judgment. This is a difficult word, for it is as if God has risen to his feet in a new way and put on the judge's robe. Now, when we see those robes, we know that the judge means business and that things are about to happen. It is the judge's responsibility to employ the law and decree what's right and what's wrong, irrespective of emotion or personal preferences. Everybody knows resolution is right around the, cor the corner. The key difference between the judges that meet at our courthouse and our city hall and Revelation 20 as God is judge is those judges that we have here are limited. Temporal beings, just like we are. We've endued them with authority, and rightfully so, but in this moment, we recognize that God is not like us. 
Those judges, they are limited by either law or statute, what they can do, even up to the death penalty. They can go no further than that. But the final judgment that God will decree for some is far worse than the death penalty, for it is an eternal death. When we read this passage, as my friend Clark read it so well just a moment ago, we are reminded that things are not always going to be as they are. To that, I remind you of something that we've said several times. There's two primary purposes to Revelation. One is a word of encouragement to the faithful. Things will not always be as they are. There's coming a day of reckoning when God will make all things wrong right. He will correct them and he will bring peace and resolution for those who are his. Eagerly, those in Christ can look forward to that day. That's the first purpose of Revelation. The second one is the opposite side of that coin. It is a word of warning to those outside of Christ, those who have rejected God's gracious offer of forgiveness, those who have said, no, I don't want that. No, I'll operate on my own. My own autonomy is better than trusting myself to God who I may or may not understand. But doing so puts you at risk of judgment. You see, the reality for those in Christ, that judgment has already come. Jesus Christ paid for it on the cross. But for those who refuse God's gracious offer, they will have to pay it themselves with their own lives. When we get to this last half of Revelation chapter 20, we find that moment coming into view. Let's start there in verses 7 and 8. God allows Satan's limited revolution and then banishes him eternally. You see it there in verse 7. When the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the seas. So at the end of the thousand years, told about in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 6, Satan will be released from this this prison, Satan will be released. And there has been no shortage of hand-wringing about that. Why would God do that? Well, we're going to talk about why God will do it in just a moment. But let's say this right now. God has one more mission to allow. I want you to grab this with both hands. He is still, Satan is still under God's authority even in this section right here. There's never been a time when Satan has been free to operate outside of God's authority. He is limited and restricted by God's power. If that's good news to you, then write it down. Satan is under God's authority. This is something that I want you to bear in mind because there's this belief among many that God and Satan are just the yin and the yang, equal but opposing powers. That's nonsense. Our God stands supremely over it all. He allows Satan. When I, Darren, that's worse than equal and opposing. Why would God allow it? 
Because he wants chosen love, not demanded. Chosen love. When I recognize with humility what God has done for me, I choose to love him. And that, friends, is the expression of our free will. I believe one of the highest marks of our, of our image of God mark on our lives. So at the end of the millennium, Satan is free. He's loosed to set in motion one final assault on God and his people. Together with Gog and Magog, drawn from Ezekiel 38 and 39, if you want to go and find that there, they will attack with deception all corners of the earth. They will seek one final time to deceive people. Why or how will people be so foolish? Let's talk about why they are available. Since the last assault on God, a thousand years will have passed. That would have been a long time. One might suspect that it would be ever so foolish for those who have known what happened with the beast and the false prophet to be deceived again. But I want you to remember this. A thousand years is roughly 40 generations. Now, who was your grandfather to the 39th power? You might say, well, I, I, I don't know. Exactly. Let's make it a little easier. I'll tell you who my eighth grand, great-grandfather is. William Rapp. You can just jot this down for your references for it later. There will be a test. William Rabb was one of the settlers who came with Stephen F. Austin in 1823. They came from Ohio to Texas and arrived in 1825 to establish the first colony here in Texas of Anglo settlers. They came with permission, although it was limited time. We'll mark that with the Alamo in a couple of weeks. But that didn't take place until 1836. In 1825, when they arrived, they came for the purpose of settling Texas. That group who came with Stephen F. Austin, we call them the Old 300. And the Old 300, yeah, my, my family was there. Now you might say, well, that's pretty cool, Darren. I know, isn't it? But more to the point, <laughs> more to the point, what does that mean now 200 years later? Well, it means Texas exists, but what do I have from that? Well, there's a town not far from LaGrange that is called Rab's Prairie. That's about all that's left of the mark that the Rab family left on our fair state. And that's only 200 years. Add another 800 to it. What I hope that you're seeing is that that length of time, people will, in their collective memory, have forgotten how awful the beast and the false prophet and the attacks were. It'll be easy to be deceived. Not only will it be easy because it's been so long, get this, there will be a great number deceived. Their sheer numbers will seem overwhelming. It says they'll be like the sand of the sea and they'll march over the broad plain of the earth. They'll come from every corner of the earth to lay siege to one place. It might seem overwhelming. And not only that, the attackers will surround the camp of the saints and the great city. 
Now, what is the great city? Where is the great city? The Bible does not say. And so anything that we might add to it for clarity's sake is sheer speculation. But I think it's reasonable to say that that holy city is Jerusalem. And this is where they will gather. They'll come there and they'll gather around the city laying siege to this place. And they will come to assault God once and for all. I want you to see this, though, and that's where I love this line that we sang in Raise a Hallelujah a minute ago. Heaven will come to fight for me. It's drawn from Exodus 14 when the people stood trapped between the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh's army on the other. And they came to Moses and they say, were there no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die? Moses says, stand still and see the deliverance of your God. And he does it as only he can by dividing the Red Sea. He will make a way where there seems no way. Their demise will be swift and certain as God brings judgment from heaven. I want you to see that. I want you to notice it because it is a powerful word of hope that we can find. See it in verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the fire of lake and lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they'd be tormented day and night forever and ever go back to verse 9 they marched up the broad plain of the earth surrounded the camp the saints of the beloved city but fire came down from heaven and consumed them what role did the saints have in defending themselves doesn't seem to have any they didn't cover the walls and shoot back, they didn't have to because like Elijah with his servant Gehazi, there were greater numbers for them than those who were opposed to them. Oh, friends, if you feel overwhelmed, if you feel burdened, if you feel persecuted, if you feel isolated, then understand today God fights your battle for you. He waits for you to trust him to lay down your armor, to trust that he, in his wisdom, is fighting it on your behalf. And then the last section about deception, let's be clear, Satan's judgment, final and firm. (coughs) Once the attackers have been destroyed, there's only one left, Satan himself. I want you to mark verse 10. For it is the last time that we will see Satan in the pages of Scripture. He does not appear again. You might say, well, where's the dividing line, Darren, between before and after? When does eternity really begin? It's hard to say with precision because Scripture doesn't identify that for us. But if you were to say, okay, knucklehead, you have to choose one moment. For me, it's here. Verse 10. When Satan is cast into the lake of fire, finally, firmly, once and for all. I don't know if this is good news to you, (coughs) but I hope it is. I hope it is because I want you to recognize 
Satan's attacks on God and his people are not forever. If you go back to Isaiah 14, you see Satan falling from heaven, not because uh, God threw him out, but because he rejected God's authority. I want to be God was essentially what he said. We see in Luke 19, Jesus telling about that moment. We see the evidence of it in the spiritual warfare that exists throughout time from then until now and until the time that Revelation 20 verse 10 arrives. These, these who have followed after Satan, they don't necessarily know it, but Satan did. They're choosing God's wrath for themselves. This is the price of disobedience. God offered them a different path, including Satan, and they rejected it. When we get here to this moment, the clock has struck midnight, and judgment falls. It's been fun, but now that time ends. It is a sad moment, and one that brings me no joy for those who are on the wrong end of it, which brings us to verses 11 to 15, the Lamb's book of life and the great white throne judgment. I want you to see one thing here in verse 11. This is a powerful statement from his presence, it says in the middle of the verse, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. You know, the education that God has blessed me with has given me a, a lot of opportunity to see things in a new way and to, to consider things maybe differently than I might have without that education. There are some things that have become quite obvious as a result of the opportunities that I've been blessed with. But one of the things that makes no sense at all is what I just read to you. How is that even possible? What does it mean that the sky and the earth fled and there was no place? It means this, the created order retreats. Now, for us, we go, where's it going to go, Darren? As I said, there are some things that we just don't know, and this one qualifies. What will be if such a time and moment comes? I, I don't know. Quite frankly, when I read this section, it causes me to feel a little like I've had a dizzy spell. You know what I mean with a dizzy spell? Anybody have those? My grandma used to have them. We learned later they were, they were TIAs. And, and I could always see when it was coming on her because generally speaking, there were some tells. You could see it in her, in her visage, in her, in her posture. And, and one of the things that we always tried to do when we noticed that was coming is we'd try to make sure she was sitting down or at least somebody would take a hold of her so she didn't fall. Well, that's a little bit as disorienting as what the Apostle John is telling us here. The earth and the sky fled away. And why? To understand why, go back. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That's why. 
this moment. It might be one that, that if we are in this first camp, that revelation is a word of encouragement. It brings joy. But if we're in this second camp, it's a little like the empire strikes back. Anybody seen that movie? If you're in my house, you can't help but see it. It's about every third day. My son loves that movie. I don't even have to see what's on the screen. All I need is to hear the music to know who's coming. When that music swells, just thinking about it, you can hear it, can't you? And it causes a chill to run down your spine and maybe lean back a little bit from the seat because you're like, oh no, here he comes. Yes, this moment of judgment has finally arrived. The created order knows it first. That's why it retreats. The Lamb's book of life, one final judgment and the second death. The Bible presents seven judgments in the pages of the New Testament. This is the last one. We'll take up the others tonight. In this moment of judgment, let's be clear, there's no place to hide. There's no mercy remaining on which to throw oneself since that season will have passed. You'll remember the Lamb's Book of Life. We covered it some time ago, and we said this. We said everyone's name. All of humanity is written down in that Lamb's book of life. And then as people reject God's authority and refuse his, their names are stricken from Lamb's book of life. God wants everybody, everybody in the Lamb's book of life, but through their choices, they will reject it. And here, when the Lamb's book of life is opened, the reason that God has for his people sent Jesus they are absent from that book and they are doomed to eternal damnation their sentence is the second death the second death let's be clear it's much worse than the first one all of us all of us should Jesus delay his return all of us will die it's still one to one 100% mortality rate. It doesn't fail. We see it over and over again. You walk through history very long at all, you'll notice it. It's a physiological experience that comes for all of humanity. The second death, however, is different than that. It is not a physiological experience. It's a spiritual one. The second death comes only for those who are absent from the book of life. It's not that their works were necessarily evil. It's not that they are morally bad people. It's not that they've committed some awful crime or that they've done something. It's not necessarily that, although that could be true too. No. It could even be that whatever they did, they did it with the very best of motives. I don't know how many people have told me, well, Darren, I'm a good person. I try to do right by people, and I want to think good thoughts for them, and I try to do good deeds when I can. Can I tell you, friends, I applaud that. But failing a personal relationship with Jesus, absent that, 
and you will miss heaven and stand straight in the lake of fire with Satan himself. Being a good person won't get you done. It will not get you to heaven. The impetus behind this judgment then is not to rub someone's nose in it. Rather, it is as if the judge has turned the book to them and said to them, this, friends, this is the record of your own choices, your deeds, and the condemnation that you insisted that you take. I wanted to take it, but you refused. Oh, friends, don't let that be you. Remember what we said about word of warning? This is the ultimate in it. This is why D.L. Moody, the great pastor of Chicago some years ago, said, I want to run a rescue mission a yard from the gate of hell, stopping people before they get there. Here it is. If we know the bridge is out ahead and we don't tell people, then shame on us. I want to tell you today, friends, this is not opinion. This is God's word telling us what is coming. And if we know that's true, then let's tell people. Now, some will say to me, you're right, Darren. Let's send some missionaries. Let's send them to the far parts of the world that haven't heard that. You know, we still have over a thousand unreached people groups in the world. People who have never heard the gospel in their own language. A thousand of them. And it's overwhelming to think about that. But you know what? I want to tell you about the biggest mission field I know. It's right outside these doors. Midland, Texas. Our mission field awaits. Some of them will come to us. Here's what I'm praying for, and I want you to pray with me. These gentlemen who will come and work on our street, they will be right outside of our door from basically now till Easter. Would you pray with me that some of what happens here spills out on them there? Will you pray with me that we get the opportunity to talk to them about the gospel and tell them about the hope that they can find? Will you pray with me that opportunities to do so in ways that they understand will come along with it? Can I tell you today, friends, the mission field is closer than you think. For some of you, it may even be in your home. If there's someone that you need to tell, this is what's coming. I love you too much to let you just fall off the edge. Then maybe today is that day. So what happens to these condemned? What happens for those who are in the second death? There's one final location for the condemned death and Hades. Herein is the place of the dead. Those who were not raised in the first resurrection. Here is the lake of fire for those who are without Christ. It's no surprise when we take a broader look. This is what we expected from all of time. It's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 25. But friends, I want to tell you, there are many who will insist 
God is unjust. I brought a couple of pictures of people who are doing it wrong. Okay, take a look at a couple of these with me, would you? I don't think he needed us to tell him he was doing it wrong. Do you think so? Go to the next one. I've never once seen my wife crack an egg this way. I don't think this is how to do it. And especially not with the price of eggs right now. Amen? One last one. I'm not sure this is how you play hockey. Now, I know we don't have a lot of hockey here. I know the jackalope's over in Odessa. But I've never once seen somebody effectively play hockey this way. I point this out to you because, friends, I want you to get this. It isn't through acts of commission that some people will miss heaven. It's acts of omission. It's not that they failed to do good things. They just didn't do the right thing. I want you to take this home with you, and it's the most important thing that I'll say. The time is now to prepare for eternity. Now. A lot of times I capitalize things in your notes and it doesn't always show up quite that way on the screens, but I ask them to make sure this is. I want you to see it. The time is now. This moment. The time is now to prepare for eternity. If you know what's ahead, Wisdom dictates prepare for it now. I've known way too many people who said, well, I'll, I'll get around to that. Well, sometimes eternity comes before we're ready for it. Friends, today, this moment is the day to prepare for eternity. Maybe you have never prepared for eternity. Ah, oh, here's good news. You can do it today. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. If you need to talk to somebody about getting your heart ready for eternity, whether it is to get out of this lake of fire or to secure your place in the Lamb's Book of Life, we invite you to come down and talk with me or my team. This day is the one God has given you to do business with him. Maybe you need to come to this altar and say, Lord, will you give me a greater burden for those who are lost? For those who have never invited you into their lives. See, one of the greatest challenges that we face is a self-satisfaction. Well, I'm taken care of. Too bad, so sad for the rest of you. Don't make that mistake, friends. Instead, ask God to open your heart and open your eyes to those who are drifting into a godless hell simply because we don't care enough to tell them. Maybe you need to be baptized and you've never taken care of that. Hey, come down and let's talk about that. Maybe you need a church home. Come down and talk with me about that. This day is the one God has given you to prepare for eternity. My prayer is you'll use it. Let's pray together.
So Jesus, today, you've given us a great gift, a chance to come into your house with your people to gather and worship, but more importantly, to hear your word, to be challenged by it. Today, Lord, we have heard your word, the word of encouragement that it is and the word of warning that it is. I pray we'll respond appropriately. I pray, Lord, for those who need to say, Jesus, I come to you for the very first time. I pray, Father, you'd give them freedom to come down here and talk to me. I pray for those who have already done that maybe long ago but never been baptized, that they would come down and talk about that. I pray for those of us who have grown weary, tired, or self-satisfied in our faith and said, well, I don't really need to tell anybody. They'll hear it somewhere else. Will you give us eager hearts? Will you give us compassionate hearts? And will you open our eyes, Lord, to a world that desperately needs the hope that we have? Do your work in this invitation time, Lord, and draw us to yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.